Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. When I was a first-year psychiatry resident, I remember one night in the ER presenting a case to one of the fourth-year residents. Hmm, she said. That's a new medication, not one I've ever tried. I probably should try that one. Yeah, you should. You probably should, too. What? I said, what do you mean, try it? Well, she said, if we're going to prescribe powerful psychiatric medications to people, I think we have an ethical responsibility to try them on ourselves first. Then we know what they're getting themselves into. Wow, I thought. And my vague recollection was that the medication in question was some type of atypical antipsychotic, and I never did try it nor did I try most of the other medications that psychiatrists regularly prescribe. One medication that I did try was Adderall, a stimulant commonly used for ADD and ADHD, a mix of amphetamine salts that helps not just with focus, but also with being able to push on past, far past the edges of fatigue. And with this medication, I actually completely agree with my former supervising resident, Any doc who is contemplating prescribing Adderall or other DEA-scheduled stimulants should be strongly advised to take it themselves before they ever prescribe it. For what they would almost surely find is that the amphetamine stimulants such as Adderall and Dexedrine and Vyvanse are extremely powerful substances, which basically feel and act like cocaine. Amphetamines, after all, are speed and a very convenient type of speed that you likely can get your health insurance to pay for. Millions of stimulant prescriptions are dished out each year in the U.S., and I think the vast majority of well-meaning docs are greatly underestimating the power and risk of these molecules. Today's episode looks at the double-edged sword of stimulant medications for ADD and ADHD, particularly in people with risk factors for addiction. And an interesting side note here, ADHD itself is a major risk factor for substance abuse, as the novelty-seeking and easily bored brain of someone with ADHD can find stimulating drugs to be irresistible. The two main classes of stimulants are the amphetamines and methylphenidate, which includes medications like Ritalin and Concerta. Now, curiously, both the amphetamine-based and methylphenidate-based stimulants are in the DEA Schedule II which includes the most tightly regulated medicines such as fentanyl and oxycodone and morphine. Yet, in almost 15 years of doing addiction work, I barely recall maybe four or five cases of addiction with methylphenidate. The vast majority of my hundreds of cases of stimulant abuse and addiction have been with the amphetamines, including Adderall. This seems to be due to amphetamines having more euphoria and overall mood elevation than methylphenidate, as well as the more painful and pronounced mood and energy crash as amphetamines wear off. For this reason, when I find it clinically necessary to treat active or recovering addicts with a stimulant, I almost always use extended-release methylphenidate, and this has allowed both efficacy in treating ADHD symptoms while also not typically triggering cravings to abuse stimulants. Today's guest is Dan Ronkin, a Boulder-based psychotherapist and addiction specialist. Dan, like so many others, was born with a need for speed, and this first led him to being a nationally ranked BMX racer as a preteen. But then his family broke apart, 
and by middle school, he was deep, deep in the drug world, using and abusing anything he could get his hands on. By age 14, he'd had three trips to rehab, then was in and out of addiction for years, finally ending up at a nationally renowned treatment center at age 29, ready to be done with addictive drugs forever. At age 29, I went to rehab again, inpatient, mm -hmm. in Minnesota, and I had... Uh, an evaluation, a uh, psychological evaluation, and I was diagnosed with ADHD. And that was my first time prescribed uh, stimulant, and this was Adderall. And it really, when I, after, I didn't take it during treatment, it was after treatment. And it was the first time other than maybe when I was doing some cocaine younger as some brief moments of like feeling clear, uh, the fog lifted. Mm -hmm. There's a, I've heard a metaphor of like life was like walking around in a dimly lit room. Pre-Adderall. Pre-Adderall, pre-stimulant, mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. bumping into things, but making my way and able to navigate taking the Adderall and my experience was too turning up that dimmer or what's the opposite of dimmer turning up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cranking up the dimmer so it's undimming, undimming. Yeah. <laughs> so I stopped bumping into things and I could see things and the learning became interesting even things that I wasn't even interested in. <laughs> I could like hyper focus on mm -hmm. uh, to a point. Yeah, that sounds like speed. It does. Yeah. yeah. So you are officially diagnosed in, in rehab, age 29, put on an Adderall after you leave, and it turns the lights on. It sort of you find the windshield wipers of your dirty life's windshield and yes. you can see clearly but then as you hinted at right now you're already starting to see hmm, maybe this could not go well if you can get sucked into things you're not even interested in yes and at the time i wasn't quite th i wasn't tracking that part but it certainly became more uh um, became more aware of that, especially since uh, over time I started to take more than prescribed. And that was a, it was already, I was in recovery and uh, um, plugged into 12 step programs. So mm -hmm. the idea of even um, taking a mood altering substance was like kind of controversial in certain circles. And then it comes down to, well, if it is prescribed by mm -hmm. a medical professional and you take as prescribed then uh go with it because these people in uh, 12 steps are not doctors well mm -hmm. some some are but like they don't get to uh, dictate um mm -hmm. and so then i was like okay so then i wrestled with that for a while and worked through that and sought wise counsel i was able i was fortunate where i bumped into some wise folks uh in my life and i certainly um, or a deep debt of gratitude toward them, such as 
when I'm saying, oh, I don't know if I should be taking this. It's like, should I or shouldn't I? It's like, I should be like really clean and sober. Otherwise, you know, that's the way. And one of the, my spiritual giants who in my life, he's like, is it helpful when you take these, you know, the medication? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay. Mm. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I was like, sure. That, that is one yardstick. Is it helpful? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How how long did it take before you moved from taking Adderall prescribed for your diagnosed ADHD to starting to take extra, run out early, maybe try to find other supplies, maybe use it ways other than orally? Yeah, about a year and a half or so. I started to um, take more than prescribed. And the justification, too, in my mind, too, is like, well, in the past, like three months ago, I was prescribed a higher milligrams. Mm -hmm. So it's like now that, you know, some reason, and I had various... I had various prescribers, not at the same time, but I had like one primary physician. Then I went to somebody else because I moved. And so I was like, okay, but they didn't, you know, they didn't quite understand, mm-hmm. you know, where I was at. So mm-hmm. I can go ahead and double up this time, um, yeah. which is actually more than the previous. <laughs> yeah. How did that evolve? So it's initially helpful. A year and a half in, you're starting to misuse it. And then did there come a point where you realized the consequences are outweighing the benefits? Or how did the Adderall story end? Yeah, it it allowed for me to... I've lived various lives. I've been in sales. I was an entrepreneur in my 30s as well, a small marketing agency in Boston. And so I was able to learn um, a lot and hyper-focus. And so that the, the Adderall really helped me in certain ways execute uh, desires of uh, um, succeeding professionally. And then there became burnout. There were consequences uh, in my intimate relationships, too. Um, Both the ability to be emotionally open and relaxed and even uh, some sexual difficulty, I think, was contributed. Yeah, because Adderall is a vasoconstrictor. So start using much of that, you're going to have serious um, impotency problems. Yeah, so along with the emotional and then the physical... And so this kind of meaning making of like, okay, I can like, as long as I like succeed in life and that's primary versus uh, the bigger picture of like um, intimate relationships and other relationships uh, versus just being in my isolated um, introspection of a certain topic, which is like fascinating and interesting when you have this extra um, brain chemicals uh, Mm -hmm. firing yet. Uh, there was a social cost and uh, and yeah, social cost and uh, really uh, health and wellness cost for me when it came down to it because of the uh, taking more than what was. Yeah, did you get dependent on it? Yes, I did get dependent on it, and then there would be cycles of I would go for the prescription would run out, 
and then I'd have a week, week and a half or so of the crash, mm-hmm. and then back to the um, couple weeks of on fire, and then the week of downtime, emotional lows, and just kind of doing what I needed to do to get by. While stimulants such as Adderall clearly turn up the idle speed and can lead to more focused thoughts and or movements per minute, what often happens is that a whole lot of nothing happens, such as going down endless rabbit holes on the internet into items that suddenly seem of great interest, or impulsive decisions to clean things that might not necessarily need cleaning, or any other number of activities that seem productive and important right now but then turn out to be inconsequential and time-wasting in hindsight. This is because one of the key dopamine circuits in the brain is involved with saliency, or importance. Typically, this circuit gets turned on with food, sex, and powerful emotional experiences. Stimulants like Adderall light up this pathway, making most anything seem really salient and important which explains the huge potential for wasted time on seemingly worthwhile activities. When it, when it was turned on, it was really turned on and I was able to get a lot done, which felt great, right? So there's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. It's like, this feels great, even though it's not good for me, yet I'm able to look at what I accomplished. And that can be, um, you know, my memory of that is also could be... Uh, I accomplished, but how much did I spend overthinking a specific thing too? Yeah. <laughs> I spent two hours <clears throat> fixated on this thing where it's like, actually that was like a, a four second uh, exercise, thought exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent two hours in because I was so fascinated and I was digging deep into the... Yeah. Yeah. There's such interesting and complicated issues with stimulants and people in recovery and ADHD and the fact that, well, number one, stimulants help everyone. I mean, the Tour de France and Major League Baseball and boxing for years, I mean, stimulants were, amphetamines were just part of the deal because everybody is stronger and can concentrate better and go, go, go. Um, people with bona fide ADHD can clearly focus better and clear away the brain fog. Um, there are people in recovery who can use stimulants and not abuse them, yeah, and other people in recovery get into stimulants and fairly quickly plunge back down the addiction hole. Yes, I've, it's really um, it's really fascinating because there were years because it was off and on for I was prescribed then I took a year or so off and then I was prescribed again and um, for me personally it ended up being really challenging to stick to what was prescribed and um, in the end although for a while it did and so uh, in the end it. Uh, it became really hard for me, and it took up a lot of uh, energy um, to like stay to the protocol. Yeah, in my sense, in pretty fundamental ways, Adderall and cocaine are very similar. I mean, cocaine has a much shorter half-life and comes as a white powder that typically you would buy from someone who may or may not be dangerous. But And Adderall comes in little neat stamped pills from Walgreens. But when you look at the net effect uh, in the brain, your mood, your productivity, your ability to focus, um, it's fairly indistinguishable. But I get the sense that a lot of um, docs, 
don't really understand that the stimulants are potentially as, as addictive as they are. I mean, they're in Schedule 2, which is the same schedule as fentanyl and mor- morphine and oxycodone. But for, there, I th- think a lot of docs just think of them as potentially safer. But uh, for certain people, they, they can be as deeply addictive. Yes, and I was uh, not transparent with my physicians in my relationship. I was uh, deceiving and um, just tough time being um, honest of where I was at uh, with with that. Mm-hmm. So how did that finally come to an end? It sounds like you were kind of on a very common treadmill where you're using up your prescription early, have a, you know two and a half really productive weeks and being the you you want to be and then kind of crashing into a brain foggy fatigue for a week or so until you get your next script and doing that over and over and over and over until until what? It took me a while to go through school. I went through... Um, online courses and various things until my late 30s is when I ended up getting both my bachelor's and my master's. So kind of intermittently mm-hmm. through the uh, 30s I was do- doing school. Then I was like, I need I need my Adderall again to, you know, to, to focus and, and write these papers. And so over time, through series of experiments, uh, and one major one was I, I was started my thesis for graduate school and I was and I was up on my prescription and yet it was one of these moments I was like it wasn't it was helping me but it wasn't helping me you know so my big push was like can I get this thesis done without it and somehow some way I was able to and I think I used that and hang on to that as a benchmark and have let go of some of the ideas of needing to like be proficient and productive in certain ways and allowance for some flexibility and messiness because for me personally there was some of these um just this energy it took up for me to manage it and think Mm -hmm. about it a lot yeah i mean that's quite a mountain to climb to to finish up your thesis off stimulants yeah. I mean, for a lot of people, that might be writing a thesis might be the most difficult task of focus of their entire lives. This, what you have to pull together to be able to do that. And yet, that's where you, as you said, sort of tested yourself. And can I do this without pharmaceutical help? Yes. Yes. It was really challenging. And what also was helpful with me is like, learning stories about other people and who have uh, been diagnosed and uh, ADHD and everything from various, um, there's some, you know, athletes to business professionals or various things. I'm just, and learning ways of like, you know what, I, I can work in ways that work for me. And like, I don't need to sit and just like pound out something and focus. I can sit for a while, get up, and go for um, a run or movement, and that's something that's been really uh, helpful for me in uh, is being active. Uh, movement and exercise has been mm-hmm. uh, helpful 
in in um, working uh, th- through life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just had this image of you know on stimulants on Adderall. It's like through the month, your brain was running four minute miles for two and a half weeks, and then just like crashing on the couch, and then running four minute miles, and cr- and then part of this is now learning. Hey, maybe I'll run eight minute miles all month long. Yeah, it's it's a that's a that's I like how you how you phrase that, and it's also as as I think about that, I enjoy bike I cycling still a lot. I uh, and I most enjoy mountain biking as opposed to road biking. I do do both um, mountain bike with the ups and downs and the climbing and then chilling, climbing and chilling, relaxing mm-hmm. versus like a constant state. So there's an interesting part of my psyche that I want to honor and embrace too of like this. Um, part of me doesn't subscribe to moderation. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> yet also. <laughs> oh, I can't relate to that at all. Oh, wait, maybe. It's okay. Um, Right, so how? What a, another challenge of recovery that, with the Adderall gone, yeah, how do you bring into your life, um, yeah, back those sort of four-minute metaphoric miles in your brain, or the excitement and the going fast, 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 but in a way that's not going to burn you out. Yeah, it's the choosing activities. So I'm still seek. I'm a novelty seeker and. Part of me uh, embraces that, and, and I and I identify with novelty and uh, stimulation. For people getting clean and sober off of downers, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines or opioids, the great challenge can be finding healthy, long-term ways to calm the overactive nervous system. In contrast, for those trying to live life without powerful stimulants such as Adderall or cocaine or methamphetamine, the task is to shift from novelty to depth, from a constant need for excitement to a deeper satisfaction with meaning and connection. So I don't think I need to like really, I need to watch it, but also like not or stop being a novelty seeker because that's part of me and I do get uh, thrills on that. Yet I've found ways to not need the level of um, level of aliveness that was felt with stimulants. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of activities now in um, physical sense too and even... Um, a jackhammer to the senses with mm-hmm. cocaine, Adderall, and like there's something like for me personally in the relationship with that, even more so than sex. It's like there's such a dry, there's such um, aliveness and a relationship with those states of consciousness that are uh, unmatched mm-hmm. in a way, even with my most important human relationships. And that's something that I don't even know if I'm answering your question. I just went on. This is something yeah, no. that became really yeah. um, important to me and meaningful. It's like, Oh, what is the relationship with it's 
I think life is a bunch of relationships with different things, objects and people, uh, experiences. Um, and the relationship was primary with substances above all else, even uh, humans. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the the love of substances was not only deep, but it was very early. It It got burned in your brain at a very tender age. Very, very tender age. Much yes. like, you know, we see that um, kids who are sexually abused, you know, in their latency or early teenage years, they get their sexuality turned on way too early and it can lead to all sorts of terrible consequences. And I'm just imagining for you, those dopamine pathways just lit on fire at age 12, 13. And, and a lot of your life, much of your life now has been trying to figure out ways to manage that, knowing what that feels like to have um, everything sparkling and awesome. And exciting. Yes, yes. It's um, so my what I strive for now is there's still some shiny and definitely excitement, uh, and then finding meaning. Uh, so more of the depth of my experiences has been something that sustains me, and not needing that super high, like my these experiences I have and like I can compare it to like skiing on a powdered day. Like there's some in truth it's like, you know what, maybe, maybe I do hit some of those crack highs. Mm-hmm. And this narrative I've been saying around this self is like there's primary relates like and so I maybe maybe I do hit some of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree that don't trying to do things alone in life and especially recovery. That's a tall order. That's that's a tough one. It's like finding mm-hmm. connection with something. And a lot of times it can be other humans, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. But it can be helpful. So yet it's not my my recovery and overall well being and spiritual life is not dependent on going sitting in a meeting. Mm-hmm. There's many ways to recover, many paths. And one of my models is also recovery on your terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something um, I definitely want to touch on with you is uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, as listeners to this podcast know, I do ketamine treatment in my practice. And a question that often comes up when I'm discussing ketamine with people is, I have a lot of people in recovery because I'm an addiction specialist as well. And a lot of people in recovery are uh, concerned that a ketamine treatment, which is a controlled substance and one that is abused, um, if that could catalyze a plunge back into addiction, or is that going to ruin their recovery, or is that forbidden? Because I have a number, number of people active in twelve-step programs, and and um, to you know, I always ask them to talk about it with their sponsor for sure, and even invite the sponsor in to meet with me if they want. But I'm curious. Um, I know you recently did some experiential ketamine training and you're about to start incorporating that into your practice and a big part of what you do you do is working with recovery so i'm curious both your experiences with the with experiential ketamine work and then how you're thinking you might incorporate that into your work yeah thank you for bringing this up this is a really important and um, timely topic 
for me as I've been really interested in the renaissance of psychedelics that's happening now and specifically with ketamine since it's available and legal and um, there's other substances which I know you're part of but let's stick to your question on ketamine specifically and before I name my recent experience I also want to note that historically along with the cocaine and Adderalls and other uh, psychedelics I did have recreational experience with ketamine uh, uncontrolled and I certainly um, yeah used it recreationally and uh, in an unsafe manner yet what I've learned over the past uh, couple of years through my studies too is how important uh, proper set and setting uh, mindset and environmental setting are for uh, journeying psychedelic experience. So what I did, um, I've had two recent ketamine experiences um, for the purpose of uh, spiritual growth and transformation and having uh, integration through the experiences of the non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I had big experiences for both of them. I could go into a bigger detail uh, if we'd like. But also, what I do want to name first and foremost is... I did not experience a sense of attachment, craving, needing to go back to that altered state um, after either of them. I did do two. They were a couple months apart. But that's really interesting that I myself as a person who is a licensed addiction counselor and licensed professional counselor and a person who identifies uh, as in recovery that I had this experience with this also recreational use um, substance and I didn't have this, uh, my brain was not hijacked per se. Mm. The satiation wasn't broken in the dough. I needed, like that did not happen and nor do I experience that right now. So, you think that was because of the ritualized, very specific context and reason you were doing it? You're not snorting it in the back room of some house, but in a setting where the, the idea is to look inward and learn about yourself and maybe have a, a kind of reset of your consciousness? Yes, I think the intention and the mindset going into it is very important and where am I going after leaving that what type of environment am I going into am I sharing my experience with trusted confidants my primary relationships am I open around this or am I doing this kind of secret because I'm trying to heal a certain thing and I'm having shame I think both are important the intention and the sharing of the experience and the environmental structure outside of that if I were to go back into some unhealthy situation, environment, toxic relationships, that would make it a lot harder for me to integrate experiences and also uh, have the healing effect that, um, that endures. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, 
where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.